Okay, so I'm going to ask a question about childhood and nostalgia and memories. What in the f*** is that? What the f*** did you just do? I just did this. I counted off things I'm going to talk about. But they were balloons. Slava, they were balloons. (laughs) Holy shit. Slava? (laughs) What the f*** did you just do? (laughs) Ah, shit. That was the... How did you do that? I don't know. Are you... Is this book about you, Slava? Slava? My initials are PW, originally. Slava? (laughs) Ah, shit. That was for the audience. For the audience, real quick, Slava did a, a a finger count, and then a bunch of balloon emojis floated up from nowhere. This is crazy. Is this episode haunted? I guess. I guess the losers didn't kill it in '85. And that freaked me out. <laughs> oh, that's funny. morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning from the streets of Misty Mountain Dairy. The streets swelled with water. Swol- yeah, they did. Swollen with water. Swollen? No, that's swollen. not right. Swollen. Right, okay. It works. Swells. Something that swells. What is swollen? Swollen. There you go. I can speak English. The streets swollen with water. Mm-hmm. That's such a good line. Chasing my little boat down the stream. Yeah. Your fleeting childhood. Can I just tell you? And I didn't get to this before I hit the record button, but honestly, childhood has like come up a bit this week because I'm doing like premarital with my fiance. And it's been, <laughs> you know, when you're like, life is fine, just work and whatever. And then you stumble on some like childhood stuff that you didn't realize was there. That's what happened this week. I'm not going to bother getting into it because it's not a therapy session. It was, uh, it was like, I got more stuff to deal with. That's fine. Whatever. Well, that's... It's good. That's apt. It is. Because when we get into the third part, grown-ups, and the third interlude... Well, the third interlude doesn't really factor into it, but when we get to the third part of this book, which, hey, by the way, it's it, if you didn't guess from the title of the episode. Yeah. We can discuss that, because I have some things that'd be interesting to volley back and forth about childhood memory, childhood trauma, how it comes into play in adulthood how memory plays into it all good stuff mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. for later episodes yeah so stay tuned to the to unpack the slava jonathan trauma trauma train yeah we'll go down to the barrens and dig up some old trauma <laughs> okay mine was mine as a little teaser mine was how i was raised to view love and i have two brothers so so regardless of whether or not they also uh integrated this in their childhood it's how i integrated childhood so yeah anyway more on that later but first 
let's uh it seems that you've done another done another thing here you've written down a question it seems yeah this one is not as good as the one with bilbo or the <laughs> hobbit but it's appropriate for this episode as we introduce the book it what scared you as a kid and i'm talking about like movies the dark were you like georgie afraid of the basement any boogeyman that stood out to you as a kid what you after either reading a story or just hearing about it what scared you so for me i distinctly remember watching when i should have been in bed my i want to say father and or uncle the uh the indiana jones temple of doom and specifically the part where the shaman priest rips out the guy's heart yes that was kind of that was kind of traumatic as a kid so that's one thing that definitely stood out to me let's do a volley back and forth because i have a list but what what's one thing that you had stick out to you one thing that stands out to me as a kid is i was afraid of the dark for about three years give or take i remember distinctly nine ten maybe eleven maybe going into 12, somewhere around there. There was a brief period of time between those years. I have a distinct memory of being afraid of the dark. And tied to that, so I'm going to say two things and give it back to you. And tied to that was being afraid of thunderstorms. And not in the sense that I would hide in my room or hide underneath the bed or I couldn't go down to the basement, but I felt a sense of dread whenever Mm -hmm. uh, it would be dark, and then any time a thunderstorm would come around, I would not be able to sit still. I would be on edge. And then one day, that just went away. Like, you know, somebody just ripped off a Band-Aid. Whoop. And I remember my first thunderstorm that I just went outside and stood in awe of, like, lightning and rain going sideways. This was in Massachusetts. And I just loved it. And I don't know if it was around the same time, but... Then all of a sudden, I didn't care about the dark. I was just, okay, I'm okay. Mm. So those are the two things that stand out. But I I read Stephen King books when I was a kid, very young. I read other horror stories. I watched horror movies that I shouldn't have was a kid. None of them <laughs> scared me. You know, well, they scared me, right, in the moment. But none of them, like, left lasting effects where lingered. I... Lingered. None of them lingered. There you go. None of them stuck to you like a specter haunting your town? No, no. Mm. Another one of mine that I'm thinking about was there was like a restaurant that we went to that our Little League was sponsored by. We went there one time and I think it was during a storm because the the power went out and it was also near Halloween. And so there was all this like spooky stuff or whatever going on. And somebody like had a bag full of it probably wasn't real needles. It was probably like Halloween needles or something. But then they were just being Freddy Krueger or something like that. And I was probably like seven or something. And I distinctly remember like these quote unquote needles or whatever they were in this plastic bag and them being weird and creepy. And then it was probably a few months later that we were going to go there for dinner again. And I was just terrified to go back Mm. because... The power went out. Things were creepy. And the thing was, this time that we were going to go back, so my dad ended up leaving me at the house alone, which was like one of the first times that, hap- that happened as a kid. Because he's like, well, we're just we're going. And if you're not going to come, then you're not going to come, whatever. 
But it was because I was terrified that this thing was going to happen again. But you're a kid. You don't know any different. Like, yep. how do you, you, you keep communicating feelings as an adult is difficult, let alone as you're, as a child. That's a funny tie into the story we're reading because a lot of times the kids that express, well, our, our club, our losers club that uh, will introduce the, the main characters here, when they express feelings to their parents, whether it's about a bully or something they saw, they quickly learn that they can't trust the adults because they don't see what the kids see. And the twist here in this book is the kids actually see the town and it, and well, we'll get into this, I promise you, audience, for what it is, and the adults are blinded to it. They're almost apathetic or unfeeling or uncaring towards what the kids are telling them. So it's an interesting tie-in. Yeah, it's been a lot of um, unprovoked childhood reflection lately. So mm. I think that it's a, it seems apt that this book deals with the same thing. You could call it prophetic if you want to. It's just interesting because it's like my life is going one direction. And then it's like, oh, the topic of this book is dealing with very similar, at least, themes and and motifs. So absolutely. And it, funny enough, as I reread this book, and this is probably my seventh time reading it, and I reread it once already in preparation for this podcast and before each episode, this is the first one, but and I'll continue doing this. But before this episode, I reread the first two chapters and part of the third. And on the full read through before we started recording, even. It brought back some memories that completely left my mind from my from my from my childhood. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll get into that later. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move forward. You're gonna give us a quick overview about how we're gonna chop up these episodes. But before we do, come on down to Davy Jones's locker and become one of the floaters, like the rest of us, hanging out here with Pennywise by hitting that subscribe button and making sure that you never miss a side quest and all the treasure that lies ahead. This week's treasure, red balloons. <laughs> 99 red balloons floating in the summer sky, or the sewer grate. Sewer grate, yeah. Anyway. It all works. It all works. Give us the overview of the episode structure. A quick note on episode structure. Thank you, Jonathan. We will do it a little bit differently than you've seen us do it with The Way of Kings or any other multi-part book, multi-episode book. The first episode here, of course, author, book overview, but we're going to discuss the setting of the story and we're going to discuss specifically how the characters are introduced. The first part introduces the terror through a couple of uh, quotes. It introduces the kids and the terror awakening in 1957 then it awakening in 1984. So it sets the stage of past and present. And then it sets the stage for character introduction. In chapter three, the next phone calls, we get introduced to all the characters that we're going to be with throughout the book. And then the first interlude introduces the town. The first part is introduction. So we will discuss it, the characters, and then the town and how the POVs that introduce them I think, are a little bit different than any other book that I read. Slava did me a really great solid, and if you listen to our 50th episode, one of his pieces of feedback for me was not coming as prepared. 
And then if you also listen to the 50th episode, it was because my schedule is unruly at the moment. But what he did for me is he gave me a series of things as a first-time reader because I've never read it before. I've seen the trailer. I've seen the posters. I, like, have a very loose idea of, like, that this is kind of about a clown and whatever. But he's like, no, no, no. Here's a bunch of notes for first-time readers. So, Slava, could you... Let's just take a quick side quest and call it a a, a side quest boot camp for first-time readers on Stephen King's The It. The, not The It. Whatever. You know what I mean. Stephen King's The It. The Stephen King wrote the book. It's called The It. Um, yeah. So, this book, it's more than a cl- book about an evil clown. It examines themes of friendship, family, grief memory, childhood, trauma, and its recurrent echoes in adulthood. It's interesting if you strip down the crap that's in the the psyche, the collective psyche of us who grew up with this book and the, the movies, because the first adaptation, as much as I like it, it's kind of silly. If you read the book, it's actually very deep for a horror book. And I know Stephen King gets a lot of crap for not being a deep writer, but I think this one, and I don't agree with that, but definitely don't agree with that on on it. So there's a lot of themes that get unpacked. And if you read it at strictly just a horror book, you'll miss it. Another thing that you should notice or know as a first-time reader is the novel Jumps Timelines. And I would explain it as almost like a figure eight, like an infinity loop. And where the two lines meet, where there's a little X, that's present day. And that's 1984, 85 in the book. And as as we get there, we get dreams and memories and uh, people traveling to Derry as adults. And then we get their memories post and pre-phone call, which you'll know what that means when we discuss that phone calls in chapter three. And you get a whole town and history and character development as this cart, if you will, goes in this figure eight loop. And when it hits the X, you you come back to present day, 1984, 1985 in the book's time. So that sh- you should be aware of that when you're reading it. The evil of it, Pennywise the Clown, is actually supposed to transcend our world. And even observable time and space. People see it as a clown. People see it as a werewolf. People see it as different ways. And he presents himself as a clown. But based on the lore and all the discussions I found online and even a podcast, I'm going to give him a shout out a couple of times in the, in this episode because uh, he, he has helped me with creating some of the notes and some of the outlines for chapter three. It's called Stephen King Cast. Guy did a phenomenal job. Anyway, it's supposed to transcend our world. So there's something about it that's more than just a clown. The clown is just how our minds comprehend it or how the minds of these kids comprehend it. So the first line of the book is the terror, which would not end for another 28 years if it ever did end, began, so far as I know or can tell, with a boat made from a sheet of paper floating down a gutter swollen with rain. So here we get the setup for the whole story. There's some, there's a terror. We don't know when it began. We're not sure if it ever ends. And everything that follows 
is the story that we're going to discuss. And it starts with a boat. So do that what you will. And I think the final thing I'm going to say before we get into it is each plot point, each plot thread creates what is essentially the novel. So you should be prepared for a detailed and immersive reading experience. That's why I use the figure eight as an example. I know in in Audi, it's hard to visualize that. But keeping track of the characters and their interconnections, if you can do that, will enhance your reading of the story. I guarantee it. That's a great that's a great overview of like first time reader stuff, but there's something that I felt like you left out that you did tell to me and and left out's probably like too strong, but like you gave me an extra detail, which was um you mentioned earlier about the second tier deities. Oh yeah. So I'll just mention what you mentioned to me and you can correct me if I've missed something. In the first chapter, there's a little tin with a turtle on it. And Slava made sure to let me know before I started reading that both Pennywise and the turtle are these, like, deities in this story that, as a filmmaker and a storyteller, I noticed. Okay, this character picks up a tin, he stares at the turtle, he doesn't brush it, but, like, emotionally, he, he, he he's like, something is about this, and then, like, sets it down and keeps moving. And so I know because it's the first chapter and King is not some sort of like amateur author that there's something about this turtle that I'm supposed to pay attention to. Well, even in the first three chapters and then the interlude, like the turtle gets mentioned. I counted four, maybe five times. And so it's like, okay, there's something about this turtle as a character being a deity. So, So that's another thing coming into this as a first time reader, like the turtle is a deity of some sort. I, as a first-time reader, don't have a lot of details. I just know that it's part of the world that has been built. And so, it to me, that was really a standout because I, I do like the supernatural. Yeah. So, just wanted to add that in before we move on to the overview about Stephen King as an author. Yeah, for sure. And I'll just dovetail that with one minute detail. So, there, yes, yeah, second-tier deities, a turtle's involved, and Pennywise, the dancing clown. And I think the word for it is glamour. So he can take any shape that he desires. And he usually takes shapes that frightens the children. Children are his main source of food because he feeds off their fears. And so if he gets them scared, he can eat them and continue to survive. I won't get into the silliness with the turtle. Although, even though I call it silly, I think it fits with the book. Because the way that the kids beat the clown or wound the clown the first time, because they have to come back, spoilers, is by using the rules that he uses to scare them, they they use the same rules of childhood, like the laws of adulthood and the laws of childhood, something that will come up too. They use that to beat him. And so that's why like little hints like that of the kid's imagination, the turtle in the tin can, that's all just little uh, breadcrumbs to get to the the battle with the clown. Exciting. I'm looking forward to that. So tell us about Stephen King. Tell us about this author. And and I said this to Slava before the episode here. I was like, we've read a few other things from King, and they were good, but, like, I'm three chapters in and an interlude, and, like, this is phenomenal. And even with my busy life, and I know that I'm going to miss some of the details, but I think that that's what makes a really excellent book is a book that has so many layers that you want to reread it because you're like, wait a minute. 
and this is to me the, the equivalent of the Stormlight Archives. Uh, it's, it's just wrapped into a single book instead of like 26 books or whatever we're at now where I can go through and do a reread and go, oh my God, this part is attached to this thing and this other series and da 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 But like this is a self-sustained, which is honestly more difficult because you're you're swapping timelines, you're swapping characters, you're swapping point of view. Again, I'm only a few chapters in and an interlude and I'm really, it's riveting where I'm like making time. Like last night I had to finish some of these chapters for today's episode and like, you know, no, most of us throw on Netflix or something at the end of an evening. I'm like, A, I, I, I like to keep my word, so I needed to get this done. But B, I was like, I want to know what's going on because, like, I got to the interlude and I had to finish it. I started it where it was this, you know, librarian, give us some uh, whatever, which we'll get into later. But uh, it's it's riveting. Like, it draws me back in. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm possessed by Pennywise. You probably are. Uh, that's what I contribute to my love of this book. Just one quick note before we get into author. Eight books of Kings, and this is me from memory, so don't at me. I think about eight books take place in Derry, and at least ten mention Derry. And the book that we're covering it, there are three instances in the book that have connections to other Stephen King universe, you know, novels and places and characters. What? We'll get you into didn't it. tell me that. I wanted to save some. As we do, as we do the character okay. introduction, get out of here. Get out of here. Uh, the, there, the one more soul will be when we do character introductions, and another one will be when we discuss a fire that the librarian's father uh, survived. So, but for those who are joining us for the first time, we're going to do our thing where we go over the author. We went over the author when we did the first short story, but we'll do it again. So Stephen King was born in 1947 in Portland, Maine, and grew up amidst family changes, spending parts of his time in Indiana and Connecticut. So his dad went for a pack of cigarettes and never came back. His mom moved around, but eventually settled in Maine. King realized he wanted to be a writer when he stumbled upon a book of the works of H.P. Lovecraft in the attic which was his father's box of things. He began writing stories, and his brother printed some of these stories in a self-published newspaper called Dave's Rag. At 17, King won a prestigious Scholastic Award and Writing Award for his story, Men of Straw. Maybe we should read that. After graduating from the University of Maine in 1970, King worked various jobs supporting his family with Tabitus Pruce, whom he married in 1971. In 1973, Doubleday accepted his novel, Carrie, making a turning point for King to leave teaching and write full-time. So he wrote this book, Carrie, about a girl being bullied who has telekinesis as a power and a mother who's overbearing uh, and who's a religious nut, which is a recurring trope with King, but I don't, I don't shit on him like most do for that, but I'm biased. So he threw it in the trash. He threw it in the trash because he's like, what do I know about 17-year-old girls? His wife found it in the trash and said, this is really good. Helped him refine some of the points of the character to make it more believable that this is, you know, a 17-year-old girl. Gave him some pointers. Yeah. He submitted it, and Doubleday bought it, and then the movie rights were sold. And he, uh, I think the movie rights sold for 
Okay. I think we looked this up before. Yeah, like 400,000. So he was able to quit uh, working, whatever he was. He was teaching and working in a laundromat. So he quit that and began working full time. Then the Kings moved to Southern Maine in 73. And that's where Stephen King wrote Salem's Lot and The Shining, which also became. So, Carrie, I'm going to just interrupt a second. Carrie sold for $2,500 at the time for the movie rights. That's it. Well, there was four hundred thousand involved. Somebody bought it for four hundred thousand. He was. It was in an interview. I watched him say it. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. I wonder where this is from then, because uh, well, somebody paid him four hundred thousand. Maybe it was Doubleday gave him an advance. Um, the movie, oh, the, for the book, the book, not the movie rights, probably then. Yeah. Because this is the movie rights. Yeah. How much did King get for uh, Salem? Uh, for uh, Carrie. Carry book rights because that number sounds familiar too. Where uh, the paperback rights were sold for a whopping 400k. Cool. So yeah. when they moved down to Southern Maine, that's where he wrote Salem's Lot and The Shining. And I'm gonna say it again uh, Stephen King is a prolific writer, he has received numerous awards, including National Book Foundation. Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2003, and the National Medal of Arts in 2014. Although popularly known as the King of Horror, King's work also draws from science fiction, fantasy, and crime fiction, all of which we covered in our short story episodes on King. So this book... He gave us the old slap and tickle. He did. That's what he's known for, the King of Slaps and Tickles. Some of you to actually get that reference. Thank you for joining us again. Stephen King's 1986 It novel is widely considered one of the most frightening stories ever written. Horror, coming-of-age stories, thriller, dark fantasy, and clowns, evil clowns, and imagination. The novel is told in third-person omniscient mode, alternating between past and present narratives, interspersed with historical interludes by a character in the book that illuminate the evil plaguing Derry. The book's cast of characters classed against a monster that can assume the form of their worst fears in a town called Derry, Maine, which itself is a source of evil. It is a masterful examination of the divide between children and adults, and it actually won the British Fantasy Award in 1987 for Best Novel. The idea came to King, as always, in a very odd way. He was living in Colorado, set on moving to Maine, and he wanted to move to Bangor, Maine. He ended up moving to center Louisville, and all this is connected, I promise you. But as he was in Colorado, picking up his car from the mechanic, he was walking across a bridge, and he thought to himself, I want to write a story and adapt Three Billies Goat Gruff into it into a real scenario. And he was also influenced by Marianne Moore's line about real trolls in imaginary gardens, as well as by a local story of a death of a gay man who was thrown off a bridge. And all that gave him the idea of it. So they moved to center Lovell, Maine, and King keeps badgering his wife to move to Bangor. And finally she relents, so they move to Bangor, and he begins to interview people. And eventually the mythology and the history of Bangor, Maine 
and the sewer systems, that was the muse. That was the final thrust of him putting together what we know is it. And I'm going to write, read a little quote from him. So King arrives in Bangor, Maine and starts roaming around collecting material. And he says, quote, before I started writing it, I walked all over town. I asked everybody for stories about places that caught my attention. I knew a lot of stories weren't true, but I didn't care. The ones that really sparked my imagination were the myths. Somebody told me, apparently, you can put a canoe down on the sewers just over across from here at the Westgate Mall, and you can come out by the Mount Home Cemetery at the end of town. This same guy told me that the Banger sewer system was built during the 1930s, and they lost track of what they were building under there. They had the money from the government, so they went nuts and made like crazy. A lot of blueprints have now been lost, and it's easy to get lost down there. I decided to put all that into a book, and eventually I did, and Banger became Dairy. So, wild success right away, and a few film adaptations, one in 1990, made for TV, Tim Curry as Pennywise. The second is a two-part feature film adaptation in 17 and 19, and I'm kind of partial to all three. The new ones are a little better. More thought went into them. But the 1990 film adaptation is, for me, just nostalgic. So as silly as it is, I, I like it. And there's a few connections to King Universe. So the Black Spot, which was a bar uh, or a nightclub that Mike's father uh, used to frequent, was burned down. And friends of Mike, one of them was Dick Halloran, which was a black man from The Shining. He was the caretaker uh, of the... Not the caretaker. He was the head chef, I think. Yes, head chef, excuse me, of the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. And if you read the book, 112263, the main character there runs into Beverly and Richie while he's in Derry. And also, I think he discovers some bones, if I remember correctly, and hears it while he's back in, you know, in Derry. It's a time travel book, 112263. So, Read that book, fascinating book. And then Ben's Adult Hometown in Nebraska. And this is I'm less confident of, but I think a case can be made for this. And this is goes to the guy from Stephen King cast. Ben's Adult Town in Nebraska is the same as the hometown of Mother Abigail from The Stand. And there's a wink at the audience when Ben comes into the bar. And the throwaway line is there's a, a big bug going around. And everybody's getting sick at the hometown. That's probably a nod to the stand where everybody's, you know, getting sick in the stand, right? So anyway, that's the book. It's a great book. If you're going to read any Stephen King book, you should read this because it does stand out from among his works, in, in my opinion. Can confirm, as someone who's only read three chapters and in an interlude, it seems to me that it is certainly one of his best and I haven't read all of his works, but I've read some of them now, partly due to you, partly due to other people's suggestions. But um, yeah, uh, I didn't know, based on your comment a minute ago, that he has these little pieces tied and nods in other other of his works. They're probably more subtle than my Neanderthal brain can pick up, but I'll leave that to you to point them out to me and the audience. I will stand in as the sacrificial goat that is the audience, unprepared and bright-eyed and innocent. 
and soon you'll all float with Slava. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. So a quick overview of the plot for those who are completely unfamiliar. In 1957, Georgia Dembro, the brother of Bill Dembro, one of the main protagonists, encounters Pennywise, the dancing clown, an evil entity that feeds on fear, only known as it. This event, at which Georgie dies, leads to the formation of the Losers Club, a club of seven outcasts from all walks of life who form a friendship over their shared experiences, including those with it. The Losers together face challenges from bullies, adults, and the attacks of the malevolent clown. After defeating the clown, the Losers promise to return if it ever resurfaces. Roughly 27 years later, in 1984, a violent incident reignites their childhood pact, prompting the Losers to reunite in Derry. The Losers explore different parts of Derry to restore memories and face another confrontation with the clown. They descend into the sewers, fight it, and ultimately kill it, noticing the disappearance of scars from their bloody pact, signaling the end of their collective ordeal. There was a note that I said or that I thought of earlier I wanted to mention for anyone who listens to our podcast either regularly or most recently some of the episodes. I mentioned this idea of how I engage with imagination and concepts for marketing and whatever. And you made a comment about King wanting to do a retelling of Three Billy Goat Gruff in not necessarily modern, but like some sort of retelling of it. And and this gets exactly into my theory. I didn't want to interrupt while you were talking, so I just want to go on a side quest here. Is So Three Billy Goats Gruff is like a fairy tale folklore piece from that your parents maybe read you from from Aesop's Fables or a childhood book or whatever. And so like that would be the X of like a piece of common societal literature or lore that everyone is familiar with. And then you draw a circle around that because that is the area of familiarity for the collective consciousness, right? So King draws an X outside of that circle he says i want to redo billy goat's gruff so he moves the x outside of people's familiarity and he makes it his own and then draws a circle around that but we're so familiar with this thing under the bridge and we're so familiar with these fairy tales that he takes it and makes it his own we're also every one of us if you're still alive today had a childhood right and so you had a group of friends when you were growing up so even if these aren't your friends these exact types of kids, you can be familiar with the fact that like, oh, I remember when I had friends and I remember when we did these crazy wild things. And and now this might be different for this generation that's growing up now. And like the kids who are in their 20s now, like, I don't think they grew up the same way that this book describes. Mm-mm. So so this is like millennial and, and older, I guess I would say, will relate to this book. Yep. But when you said that, that King wanted to, to redo... Three Billy Goats Gruff, I was like, oh, this is exactly what I described in my remaking of something that's familiar enough to people that they will enjoy and adopt it because it doesn't make them think very much, but also unique enough that they're like, oh my God, this is like, this is phenomenal. And it's, and I don't want to dismiss, King is a prolific writer, so I don't want to dismiss that, but it's in his prolificness that he understands that you can't you can't give people something so brand new 
and expect them to adopt it and love it instantly. But you can give some, them something that is familiar enough to draw them in and then add some extra stuff outside of that, which will draw them to experience something new. So just wanted to do a little side quest on on like, oh, shoot, like King did the same thing. I don't think it was as systematized as I describe it in my X circle X circle theory, I guess we'll call it mm-hmm. or like whatever. But it was interesting that you mentioned that that was part of what spun this book idea or like the seed that spun this book idea. Absolutely. Good point And excellent palate cleanser as we move into as we move into the book. So a quick overview of the section that we're covering. So there's two points, past and present, child and adult, and then the adults are called to go back to dairy. Then we are introduced to them as adults. And in their memories, as they begin to come back to dairy, we get introduced to them as children. And I want to, again, shout out to Stephen Kingcast podcast, because I don't like I don't like taking ideas and not citing the right people. He did a fantastic job of explaining this, and I'm going to only use some of his stuff because this is SideQuest podcast, not a retelling of other podcasts. But I think the outline that he provided for my brain to then write out what we're going to talk about in this first section, I got to give him a shout out. Don't know the guy's name, but Stephen King cast podcast. So introductions, Jonathan, what stood out to you the way that the characters were introduced. I have the answer, and I hopefully you picked up on it. What, what stood out to you the way they were introduced? Because they, they were introduced a little bit differently than one would imagine characters should be introduced in the book. Well, I remember distinctly chapter one, where you've got Georgie and his brother, and just this, just like you said, it's it's flipping between time periods Mm -hmm. because i remember first catching this and there's a line where his brother is homesick um bill and he said oh yeah mother was playing fleur de lis or whatever i don't remember exactly furlies okay you know close enough you want a side quest just a two-sentence side quest when i was a kid that song haunted me i loved it i would play it on over and over again my brother gave me a set of classical music cds uh-huh. and for some reason for elise just was was haunting that's the only way i could describe it i'm using that word purposefully because we'll talk about haunting and dairy all right continue so so yeah but uh george not george uh bill has this moment where he just says oh yeah mother was playing fleur elise back the day that Georgie died. But the thing is, in the story, we're following Georgie, and so you go, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Like, And so it's these moments where it's just a sentence that, and this is one of the things that I really like about uh, King's writing, is it, 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 it's chaos-ordered, mm-hmm. I guess I'd call yeah. it, because it's not that he's just throwing in willy-nilly lines this is a purposeful like hey we're in the present with georgie taking the boat that he made with his brother down the street in the rain in his slicker and he's having fun and he's thinking about oh man it'd be fun if bill was here but he's kind of sick 
And then Bill's like, oh, Mother's playing that song. That's the song that happened when Georgie died. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. Georgie's not dead, though. And so now we've been set up in this in this first chapter where we've been set up with, like, we know what's going to happen. When you walk in to watch Titanic, you know that the boat's going to sink. You know that going in. So it's like, well, how are they going to do it? You know the ending from the beginning. And this is, like, a very common storytelling tool that people use and it was brilliantly executed here by King. So, so that's just like, if you do nothing else, but like you're in a bookstore, read the first chapter of it because it's riveting. Like it really is. Yeah. And there's just lines that are so amazing in this introduction. I'm just going to read the, the second line of the book, which is the boat bobbed listed, righted itself again, dived bravely through treacherous whirlpools, and continued its way down Witcham Street toward the traffic light, which marked the intersection of Witcham and Jackson. Now, why is that? Well, it's just nice writing. It's well-crafted writing. But we also get these street names, which later, you know, if you read the book later, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember Witcham from the beginning of the book. Oh, I remember Niebold Street. I remember Jackson. I remember Main Street. Just like with the turtle, King just drops little breadcrumbs here and there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's fantastic. The thing about dropping in street names is it gets into this nostalgia. And it's what I was talking about a minute ago, where when you're a kid, you're like, oh, yeah, Tommy. Tommy lives over on uh, Brooklyn Avenue. And uh, and Joey, Joey's over on Cortellu. Like, yeah. And so you're a kid and you know the street names. Like, street names are how you get around. That because you're probably riding on your bike. And... You know where all your friends live because your friends are neighborhood kids, right? Like, so it adds to this like small town feeling and he really taps into, and I don't know if, if King has read psychology, but he really taps into the life that people have lived in this age and world that they grew up in. So it's pretty, it's, Again, I don't have another word besides prolific. Prolific is the word I'll use. Yep. So here's the other line or two. The urgent water had cut a channel which ran along the diagonal. And so his boat traveled from one side of Witcham Street to the other, the current carrying it so fast that George had to sprint to keep up with it. Water sprayed from beneath his galoshes and muddy sheets. The buckles made a jolly jingling as George Dembro ran towards his strange death. And the feeling which filled him at that moment was clear and simple. Love for his brother Bill. Love and a touch of regret that Bill couldn't be there to see this and be a part of it. So this moment is set up that, you know, these two brothers really love each other. And later in a book, Bill will say that he hasn't thought of his brother since this fateful day when he's talking to Audra when he gets the phone call. Of course, he would try to describe it to Bill when he got home, but he knew he wouldn't be able to make Bill see it the way Bill would have been able to make him see it if their positions had been reversed. Bill was good at reading and writing, but even at his age, George was wise enough to know that that wasn't the only reason why Bill got all A's on his report cards or why his teachers liked his composition so well. Telling was only part of it. Bill was good at seeing. And not to jump the shark completely into a different topic, but I think 
what King describes here about Bill, who is the writer of the group, he turns into a writer, and it might be a stand-in for the author in some way. I think in the second part, when we get a view of Bill Dembro in college, I think it's somewhat autobiographical. But when you're telling stories, you have to be able to make people see it, right? You're a filmmaker. You're a storyteller. In the beginning of the book, it's almost meta because you get to see what Georgie is doing. You're almost, it's almost as if you were Georgie running after a boat. In so few sentences, King paints a picture that you can see. Like you said, you remember doing these kind of things. We grew up in a time where kids did this. Now, not to make a moral judgment or point about what kids do today, but we did this kind of stuff, and we're yeah. able to see it. Georgie running in his slicker with his galoshes. It's relatable. It's yeah. relatable. So I, I thought that was fascinating. The characters. You, you, you originally, the original question is you asked me about the characters, and I only got to two of them. So Go ahead and answer. Well, that, that's my answer is I remember those two. And frankly, I don't remember the other ones because this stood out to me so brightly because I've got two brothers. I've, I, rem- you know, there's times where you play alone and you're like, oh man, you know, if my brothers were here, da 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 da. This to me stood out a lot more than anything else. So, like, whatever else you want to say about the, the introduction of the characters, you're going to have to remind me. During this chapter three, when each one gets a phone call, the six phone calls in 1985. We're introduced to characters through POVs that are not their own. We get introductions through side character POVs. So Patricia, Uris, Stanley's wife, introduces Stanley for us. We get to see her after his suicide and her describing the racism and anti-Semitism she faced and how Stanley made her feel good and how Stanley always had a way of pointing to something and saying, we should move to Atlanta. And he was right. He gave her stability. And at the same time, there was always something in the background. He would mumble something about a turtle, right? Or he would be scared of something, just just like a blib, blimp on the, on the screen, a little brief moment where he would be a little bit off. And then he gets that phone call, and he kills himself. And we see that it and its evil, the way it touched the losers, goes beyond just the losers and beyond just dairy. Like, this evil now has affected Patricia Uris, right? We we see Stanley, who's the diligent and the disciplined, we see him come undone here. And it's through his wife's eyes. Uh, Richie Tozer, we kind of get thrown into his uh, world right away. He's a DJ. Ben Hanscom, uh, same way. We kind of see him. But not so much because the bartender is kind of telling the story about Ben before we really get into Ben's head. Then if you go to Eddie Kasprak, his medicine introduces us. We get a list of all the medicine. Then we get his wife, Myra, losing her ever-loving shit. And then we get into Eddie's head when he's in a train to Boston and then ultimately to Derry. Beverly, holy God, we get to see her, her through yeah, that was a little tough. Tom's eyes. And Tom, well, Tom's a piece of garbage if you haven't read the book. And we get to see her. Yeah, absolutely piece of shit. We get to see her through his eyes, weak and dependent and in a cycle of abuse and even liking the abuse. And there's a scene where he makes love to her, if you want to call it that, after beating the shit out of her. 
And in her mind, she kind of associates the same thing with how her father would show her love and then punch her in the stomach or show her affection and punch her in the stomach. And then you see her awakening. And then Tom is just now on the ground, his ass beat, which was very satisfying. But you see her also through Tom's eyes. And then you get to Bill Dembro. And his introduction is the most kind of solid. By that, I mean he has a good life. He's completely forgotten dairy. He is in a relationship that he, you know, cherishes his wife, Audra. He's actually saved her from drug abuse because she was falling into it. And then he came along and that's revealed a thing a little later. He gives her stability and she's his stability. And they have the most healthiest life and relationships out of all the losers. Even Mike Hanlon, who's left all alone in dairy. He has the most to lose also because he has something to live for, and it's Audra, the stability. And so he alone, uh, it, well, not he, yeah, I guess you can say this away. He alone gets a perfectly, you know, singular, only Bill Denbrook POV. So I think that that kind of juxtaposition between the losers and their introductions is fascinating because you have these six losers who've forgotten everything. You get these intricate POVs with side characters. And then you have Mike Hanlon, who's part of the narrative, who's part of the narrative, obviously he is, who is a joint narrator with the omniscient narrator telling the story of Derry and calling them back because he remembers everything. It's not complicated, but how complex, right? It's pretty complex. Yeah. It's, I, I it's love well it. thought out. It's yeah. well executed. Yep. It's interesting but it's not confusing and even though i said earlier it's like to me i had a little trouble keeping the american names straight it's like this is my first read through and i expect that like a book of this intricacy i'm gonna hark back to the way of kings you're like now wait a minute who was the assassin again who is this like when you're first reading through a book that has a cast not like oh there's two or three characters a full-on cast and it's not just a cast, it's the cast plus the two or three characters in their lives who are relevant. Just like you said, we're getting the POVs. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, or we're looking at the main characters that we're supposed to follow, the cast of characters, through someone else's POV. It's like, that's a lot of names to take in. So, of course, I'm not going to. And, like, you could say, you know, you can at me at the comments. That's fine. Of like, I'm just justifying. Whatever. Like, it's my first read through. And, you know, I'm cool with that. That's fine with me. No big deal. Good stuff. The next thing. And it's in the same vein of introductions. We are now introduced to the town of Derry in the first interlude. This is now Mike Hanlon's, an unauthorized town history of Derry, or Derry, an unauthorized town history. And this book was supposedly found in a vault in the library. And this is Mike Hanlon's recounting of the history of Derry. He begins to write things down. He writes them down so he knows exactly with 100% certainty that it is working on the cycle. It has come back. So when he calls the losers back, he does not just calling them for no reason. Get in, losers. We're going to dairy. Exactly. So here's something that stood out to me. I, I love this next few lines. And this is from his notes, Mike Hamlin writing. Can an entire city be haunted? Haunted as some houses are supposed to be haunted. Not just a single building in that city or the corner of a single street, or a single basketball court in a single pocket park. 
a netless basket jutting out at sunset like some obscure and bloody instrument of torture. Not just one area, but everything, the whole works. Can that be? Listen. Haunted. Often visited by ghost or spirit. Funk and wagnails. Haunting. Presently recurring in the mind. Difficult to forget. Ditto Frank and friend. To haunt. To appear or recur often, especially as a ghost. But, and listen, a place often visited. Resort, den, hangout. Italics are, of course, mine. And one more. This one, like the last, is a definition of haunt as a noun. And it's the only one that really scares me. A feeding place for animals. Such a good introduction. So I listened to that a couple times because I I like linguistics. I like words. I like word choice, even though sometimes my speech isn't as eloquent as I might prefer. It's, you know, okay, this is setting the scene. And in film, we call it the mise-en-scene, which is like a French, French phrase for setting the scene. It's yeah. what is the context of what's about to take place. And so him going through like, hey, these are the words or this is like the word that is causing me unease, you know, coming to, I, I'm trying to think of another word besides haunt, coming to berate, spiritually berate. It's interesting, right? Like it's, it's captivating even. Yeah. And then he asks the question, he repeats the line and goes, a feeding place for animals. What's feeding in dairy? What's feeding on dairy? Yeah. So you know that now these people that have been introduced with their problems and their successes and things that control them, like the medicine for Eddie, abusive men for Bev, Richie, his escape is humor. Ben, he is diligent, but he is also a loner and he continues to be a loner. And, you know, now that he's realized he has to go back, uh, he has all these emotions. And then Bill... Dembro, like he beat the stutter, he forgot about Georgie, he married a superstar, he's successful. So all kind of all different walks of life, they're all now drawn back to this thing, this town. And it's not like, oh, they're going back to, like Mike said, a house that was haunted, they had a, a funny experience in. They're going to the town that almost ate them alive and has been right. feeding on the people of Derry for hundreds of years and then in every interlude we'll revisit this topic i'm not going to yeah. spoil anything here or not even going to jump to any any of the other interludes but we'll revisit dairy in every interlude and it sets up a perfect picture of how corrupt that town is so i want to pause for a second and side quest on storytelling and narration mm -hmm. and how i think that we often take for granted the again the sheer brilliance of crafting a story in a way where your audience has to make assumptions so like this is it this is the last podcast for the it and we move on to a different book like you can already understand i'm not saying we're going to do that but if you were to only read three chapters in an interlude you know so much already about the characters the world and the setting nothing else you could again you could stop reading three chapters in an in an, in an interlude and you know so much about the world and the characters and what is going to take place, even if it hasn't been described yet because of the way the story's set up. 
because the author has taken the time to display before you, like if you've ever been to a sushi restaurant, and I haven't been to one of these, but I want to go, where the conveyor belt's going around, and it's like, here is your spread. Here are your options. Here are the things that are coming for you in this story, and they're just handing it to you on a plate where it's just like, cool, and then the next course is this, and then the next course you're like, oh, this is the same flavor that I got in the appetizer because da-da-da-da, and he like sets it up so well, and I think that this is part of the reason that we, and I can't prove this, but I think that this is part of the reason why we love story because it involves, no, how do I want to say it? It requires us engaging with the story. If you stop reading the book, the book doesn't exist anymore per se, but the assumptions are still there, and you will go back and think about them. Does this make sense? I feel it, like this makes sense. It makes sense to me. Uh, I think you're you're right on, on the money. It makes sense. Now, shifting gears a little bit, Jonathan, one thing that stood out to me during this read-through, and I think I mentioned this before we started recording, is the amount of nostalgia I felt, unlike the other times I reread this, and even memories that flooded back to me from childhood like hanging out with friends, particular instances in the library looking for books or hanging out with a kid after school and going to the computer club or just roaming the school hallways when it's empty and just shooting the breeze with him, kind of like Bill and Richie do uh, when they're just walking together. I, I felt the sense of nostalgia. I felt these memories coming back to me. And it sparked an interesting conversation I had with myself about friend groups, how you have these friends for a while when you were a kid and you have bonds as close or if not closer as described in the book. And then you forget about them, you move away. And once in a while, as an adult, you'll remember, oh yeah, I'm not going to use his real name, but oh yeah, Pete, I remember him and him running around with me in the hallways. And then we would play games in the computers. And then we just just roamed the roamed the hallways of our school and teachers were still around in the classrooms and it was just just an hour or so after the classes had ended they didn't care because we weren't doing anything bad and we weren't horsing around but and then we would horse around and they wouldn't see that but just that those moments kept flooding back to me on this read through so i'm uh, wondering if any of that happened to you or can you remember moments of that in your childhood yeah there's and and talking about nostalgia here and i think this is one of the reasons i really enjoy stranger things Mm. um and i think a lot of us i think that a lot of us enjoy these things because nostalgia sells so so you talked about nostalgia friendship and memories and i want to side quest nostalgia real quick because the reason that things sell so well for us, okay, let's take the Barbie movie, right? Barbie movie is a great example of this. They just released the Barbie movie in the summer, right? Does that sound right? Sounds about right. Yeah. So, yeah, Barbie's been around since the fifties or sixties, and you've got a generation of women who played with Barbie who are, let's say, in their thirties, right? Let's just let's say in their thirties, but it's going to be more than that. So a generation of women who are in their 30s had a movie about one of their childhood toys. Of course they're going to go watch it, even if it's the most garbage shit ever. Because 
everyone wants to relive the past. I think I've quoted him before, but Blaise Pascal has this pense, <laughs> has this pense, number 47, where he says, we spend so much time thinking that the present fleets too quickly or that the future doesn't come quick enough that we end up living in times that do not belong to us. And so inevitably, it should be that men will never be happy because they are always thinking that future has, doesn't come quick enough or the present fleets too quickly. And so they should never just be happy. I'm slaughtering it. He does a much more eloquent job of, of describing it, but he calls it vanity, right? Mm. And we're always looking at, oh man, back when I was in high school, I used to be a track star, I used to do this, used to do that. This is how we tell stories too. Yeah. So it's super interesting that a lot of popular things or things that become popular are because of nostalgia, right? So that's the first point. And I think that it's books like this and Stranger Things as another key pop culture example that it's like you didn't have to play D&D as a kid to really love Stranger Things. You might just love Stranger Things because you remember, oh, man, my grandpa had an old car like that Bronco. Oh, we used to live in a small town like it doesn't have to be the main through lines and the main story points that are like, yeah, we had aliens in our city and like the government was doing testing. No, no, no. <laughs> that Evil doesn't clowns. have to be your story. Yeah. yeah. But it can simply be, oh man, I remember the eighties. I remember when music was like this and my older brother had a car and I was a kid and he would drive me around or whatever. Nostalgia comes and reminds us of the good and the bad. And so, Nostalgia sells. So here's just like another marketing tip. If you can find a way to relate whatever you're trying to sell to this nostalgic feeling, you will make, like Barbie, a billion dollars in 17 days. Billion. 17 days. Barbie made a billion dollars. I'm saying it again. Barbie made a billion dollars in 17 days because all of these women went to go watch something that's related to their childhood, a toy that they played with, as well as topics that they deal with and feel. And then they were bringing, and this is where you get double tickets, they were bringing their daughters, because even if they haven't bought them a Barbie, they remember, oh man, grandma bought me a Barbie when I was a girl. Yeah, let's go watch this together. That's double tickets. And then they usually would bring their girlfriends and go watch it a second time, which is quadruple tickets or quintuple. Like, it's insane, the level of, cash you can generate from nostalgia so that's the first thing that's just like marketing and and whatever but it goes further because everyone had a friend group when they were younger even me as an idiot i had i can remember i had like two distinct friend groups and i'm using this this phrase uh loosely but we had our neighborhood friends which included bullies and it included the kids you didn't really like but you had to hang out with because they were literally in your neighborhood and you don't have a car, you have a bike, and you're like seven years old, and you've, you, your parents, you know, game consoles kind of existed, and TV kind of existed, but like, parents had strict rules, of like, you gotta be out of the house, get out of the house, go go play around, whatever. So, like, you have these friend groups, even if you don't like these kids, you still gotta be friends with them, which teaches you how to engage in the real world, because there's gonna be a lot of strangers that you're not gonna like, and that's okay, and you still gotta get along with them. So that's the thing. Reading a book, and again, Stranger Things is another clear example, where you have like, Oh, yeah, I remember riding around my bike in my neighborhood and being the only way to transport myself or like this, where it's like, oh, I remember running around with the kids in the woods in the backyard because oh, yeah. we would build these forts and this whatever. Yep. Like, it's just what you do. 
and to hark back to what we said earlier, it's like, I don't think kids today are going to have this same level of experience. But what we're going to see is we're going to see, you know, whoever the next young Stephen King is, who ends up writing, is going to write the same sort of nostalgia that King is writing for us in their type of literature for them. Yeah. And it's going to be the same principle and premise that nostalgia sells, right? So nostalgia, friend groups. I only Sorry, I only mentioned the one friend group. The second friend group was like, I had like two friends in school. Like I was not a popular kid. It's not that I smelled bad or anything. It was just like, I didn't have a lot of friends. It's just, I didn't know how to be charismatic or do whatever, but you know, the popular kids, what have you. So, so I remember like middle school. No, this is before this is like elementary school. There's like, uh, I'm going to call one kid, Joey, and I'm going to call the other guy, um, uh, Sam. I don't know. Anyway. So like these two kids and, and they're both dorks and like one of them's really into science. And I actually ran into him about, seven years ago and he's like a programmer now and then the other guy i think i saw uh like at a grocery store probably like 10 years ago and he's still really weird too joey but like these were the weird kids but i like i didn't know any different but they're the kids you hang out with you go over to their house we would like try and mess with like electrical motors and batteries and like trying to get a little fan to spin or whatever um we talk geological rocks and stuff and like but you remember these things and like they, they lived in not the greatest neighborhoods in the world, but like, you know, I remember the houses had the old carpet and it had that weird distinct smell that people's houses had back in the day. And like, you could picture all those things. Oh, and yeah. So you're reading this book and you're thinking about this stuff and you go, oh yeah, I remember. Oh yeah. We, we went to Joey's house and like, oh, that was the week that I was grounded too. Wasn't supposed to go over there. And he was playing video games and I wanted to play too, even though I was grounded and we ate, you know, mac and cheese, and he was looking at some sort of, oh, my God, this is going to date us. But, like, we were playing with Pogs, and he had a little Pog maker, and he took his mom's, like, Victoria's Secret magazines for, like, whatever. And she was a big lady. She was, like, uh, what's that guy's wife's name who dated his mom? He married his mom? Uh, Myra. Yeah. So she was a thick gal, but not in the way that you'd see on Laguna Beach. Um she she was Midwest thick, if I can call it that. <laughs> yeah, um, she was she was a Midwest mid, Midwest eight, Laguna Beach four. She, <laughs> yeah, well, eight's a big number, but all right. She was she was a Midwest cinnamon roll. We'll call it that. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay. Anyway, um, and look, here's the thing: you I'm are not what you fit, eat. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a fit person myself, so like I I'm a Midwest uh, meatloaf. Anyway. So I don't want to get called out for fat shaming. It's just like being fat is unhealthy, period. I don't care who you are. Um, and I haven't been to the gym in over a year. But uh, I can tell. so it's just funny because he, he takes his mom's Victoria's Secret magazines and he's making pogs out of them. And he's like, oh, she doesn't know. And he's like, you want some of these to take home? And I'm just like, I mean, I'm a kid. I'm seven or eight. I like women. Like, sure, I'll take a couple home. But it's like, you know. A picture of a bra ad, you know, like just stupid shit, right? Like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah. so so this and this gets into memory. You're like, you remember your friend groups, you remember these kids you used to hang out with, and you remember just the dumb shit. Like, and you think about it, you're like, what an idiot. What like what are these kids doing? Like, taking their mom's magazines and like making pogs out of them and trying to be secretive about it. And it's just like, oh my god, it's just. It's it's things like this that you you read a book like this and again we're three chapters in an interlude in 
and you can go, oh yeah, I remember when I did blank. I oh yeah, riding the bikes. Oh yeah, like school was four blocks away for for me and my brothers mm. uh, yeah. at some point. Yeah, like for me too. Growing up, and so you you take your bike and you ride down the hill, literally down a hill. Like, and then you have to go up the hill to go home, and you're walking with all the school kids. Like it's just a parade of children, and everybody's going and you know, neighborhoods were, you know, probably safer back then, right? Because you, you're you not going to steal one child out of a group of 1,700 who are all walking to school at the same time for different grade levels. Yep. You're just not going to do that. So I don't really have a point here outside of to, uh, outside of saying that to, to, to try to summarize. You can just call me Bill with my stutter over here. Um, summarize, nostalgia sells. So if you're trying to sell something, use nostalgia. It's nice to reflect on where you've come from and think about times that don't belong to you anymore, but just don't live there. And then it's amazing how memory can sit dormant. Yeah. Like you find an old hard drive almost and you're like, oh, I wonder what's on this. And you spin it up. You go, oh, man, this is my school project from whatever. I remember being so impressed by myself because I figured out how to use iMovie. And you look at it now. You're like, this is garbage. But uh, you it's you've forgotten it in. It, this gets back to the story and I'll throw it back to you here in a second is we forget. And this shit, this gets into the, the stuff I was dealing with this week where like, I didn't realize how I viewed love from childhood until I had something that happened that cat was a catalyst for me going, Oh, this really hurt because of X, Y, Z reason. And then, like, journaling about it for a minute, and then, like, had to explain to my fiance parts of the scenario. And anyone who's ever been in a romantic relationship can relate to this. It's like the way that you start talking about these things is mildly accusatory. It's not the goal because it's not really the feeling here. Um, it's that there was a catalyst and it sparked something from the past and from childhood that you need to address. And then, like, at some point I start weeping, which you don't even, you, you know, it's not a plan. It's just like, oh shit, I'm talking about this. And then it's like, oh, there's actually something here. <laughs> and you're like, it's, it, there's also like these two parts of myself where I'm like talking about it and feeling the emotion. And the other part is like the grown man who's going like, am I really like weeping right now about this nonsense that really doesn't matter? And it's like, well, to your inner child. And if we want to get psychological, your inner child, like it does matter. And clearly it's not resolved and you need to sort it out. So uh, anyway, that's a lot of um, that's a lot of things for a lot of things. Oh, yeah. So uh, back to you, Slava. Back to me. Well, I'll continue asking you questions. And this following question is kind of part and parcel of SideQuest because we've talked about characters that I identified with. And part of that's kind of like a running joke because Siri. Yeah. Listen to yeah. the previous episodes. But I want to ask you, and I'll answer this question too, but I want to ask you, in the first introduction, I get it, three chapters and an interlude, and you'll learn more about these characters. But right now, just like the assumptions you made me answer during The Way of Kings, which characters so far do you like the best, comma, and identify with? There might be separate characters, but... Like the best and relate with. I think I like Bill Denborough a lot. And I just relate with him because 
I've got brothers. And so it's like, yeah, there's just like something, even though he and his brother had a different sort of relationship where they were actually friends to each other. My brothers and I were not as kind because we were little boys and you'd pick on each other because that's just what you do. So like that part sticks out to me and I go, oh yeah, I remember when I was young with my brothers and I've got a, a, a handful of stories of the nonsense that we did. Another thing that you said related to, is that right? Yes. So I don't think we've got enough time with him yet, but I feel like Richie Tozer being funny and uh, goofing around, I relate to. But also, I almost feel like there's some 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 Ben Hansen in there too, Hanscom. where it's like Hanscom, whatever. Because I was I was like the fat kid growing up, like, and and well, let me let me rephrase this because it's like I, there was also a fat kid at school, but I was just like a fat kid, right? There's the fat kid. No, you know what I'm talking about. I know. Too. You, I know. There's like the fat kid, and then there's like being a fat kid who you're like you're not one of the jocks, you're not super good looking, and no. you just have some extra roles because I also really love cinnamon buns. So like, I had a cannoli last night. Uh, nobody else had dessert, but I did because cannoli. reading your Victoria's Secrets, eating cannolis. <laughs> yeah. So those are the three characters that stood out to me, and like I relate to a little bit. For different reasons, right? Like I didn't have an abusive father. Um, you know, I, I'm not necessarily an amateur historian I, or I wasn't as a kid. I certainly didn't become fat because I was disciplined as a child like Stan. So definitely going to leave that one off here. But uh, yeah, those were a couple of the characters that I that I relate with. What about you? Some of these folks stand out to you? They do. And it's a bit of a kaleidoscope. If for lack of a better word. So no, I think that's a good kids don't have kaleidoscopes anymore. Right. I relate to Richie, not because I was the funny kid. I grew into the funny kid. Well, looks aren't everything. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> you can't use my joke against me. Um, not your joke. This joke's been around since the forties. First time I'm hearing it from your mouth. And oh, I've okay. said it like 10 times to you already. So I feel like you're stealing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Nevertheless, Richie, because humor, and I had a weird sense of humor when I was a kid. I believe that. So I relate to him, and I was sarcastic as a kid, so I relate to him in that. But as funny as he is, to come up with jokes on the spot, I grew into that. That came out about maybe in high school that started coming out, not not when I'm 9, 10, 11, 12. So I relate to Richie in that way. Bill, not so much. Although I find Bill's willing to do the right thing, do the right thing despite the costs. I conviction. Yes, conviction. So it relate to Bill in that way. To Ben, the fat kid, I was never the fat kid. I was a skinny kid, and I gave me fun of being skinny because kids will make fun of, of you for anything. Anything. Literally anything. Literally anything. So Ben as a skinny Ben who lost his dad early and was a loner as a kid. He distrusts uh-huh. his mom. Because she, the way she reacts to things, and he spends all his time in the library, and he's a loner. And apart from a few friends, like that guy Peter that I mentioned, apart from a few friends here and there, and then a quarterly interlude into the woods with the other guys in the neighborhood, most of the time I was alone, like Ben, and spent all my time in the library reading books and 
letting my imagination run wild. And Eddie, only in the sense that my mom was crazy and overbearing just like his and tried to keep me at home and tried to control me to the degree that she controls Eddie. Mm-hmm. And sometimes she she succeeded less than Eddie's mom did, but that hindered my ability to make the friends that I could have. And that turned me into a Ben. Don't relate to Stan. Don't relate to Bev at all. Mike, not so much. I like them as characters. I think Ben, not Ben's, excuse me. I think Bev's, Beverly's character arc is wonderful. I think Mike is a very strong character just by himself. So I like them, but don't relate to them at all. But the other four, they're like I said, like a kaleidoscope of four characters that come together and there's little bits and pieces of each that I really identify with. Them as a whole, like the imagination, the escape, getting together with, with one guy or with a couple of friends, like getting together and just talking. Obviously, some of it was nonsense, but as a kid trying to process the big bad world and trying to talk it out as a kid using kid laws, you know, in an adult ruled world. Kid laws. That's interesting. We should come back to that in a future episode. Yeah, we should. And we will. We will. Okay. Uh, right. I, I dropped that's that. interesting. That's the second time I dropped that word, and that's the breadcrumb of this episode, of this series of episodes. Yeah. And then forgetting childhood, dealing with bullies. I dealt with bullies in the fifth grade and part of all of seventh and part of eighth until I pulled a Ben Hanscom on my freaking uh, bully. And then that was over. All of a sudden, the weird Ukrainian kid gets to play baseball with the kids after school. <laughs> after, you know, the Barons weren't involved, but people fell down some stairs. So let's just put it that way. <laughs> you know, They tripped, huh? I, no, Well, I fought back. And nobody tripped anybody, but I fought back after being like, put, keep being pushed in the back. I just yeah, turned around yeah. and started fighting back, and the guy fell down some stairs. Um, <laughs> nobody was hurt, but everybody understood that, you know, Slava... Was, you don't mess with him. No longer is going to take any shit from uh, uh, Henry ba- my Henry Bowers. At that point, I've had enough. So as a whole, I relate to these guys as a group, how close they draw to each other, and the conversations they have and the little mini adventures they have. There's just something about that that was not only nostalgic, but... I remember actually yeah. having yeah. those kind of conversations, having a club, having conversation about adult things, ha- trying to figure out why adults are such assholes. <laughs> Just making making small chat as kids, which is something that usually is associated with adults, right? They're making small chat. They're, they're doing this. They're shooting the shit. But kids have their own version of that. And it's very yeah. silly. Um, yeah. And I remember, I just remember being part of that. So, So that's that. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting, and I really think that a lot of us, if we slow down for a little bit and think about it, we all kind of miss that pre-existing community that happens when you're a kid, because you're like, well, my parents aren't going to drive me to my friend's house that I want to go over to, so I guess I'm just going to be friends with whoever's in the neighborhood, so I guess I'll do that, and then, like, we don't have that. Like we've got people we work with, but oftentimes like, and I think you and Jess is a great example. Most of the times you don't become friends with your, with your coworkers. And so when you do, it like stands out, right? Like, yeah. Or you, you stay work friends, which are work friends, you know, 
are only friends that you are friends with at work and you don't really get a hold of them outside of work, right? Because it's like, oh, well, this person is associated with the stuff I have to do for work and most people don't like their jobs. So I guess a roundabout way of saying like, I think if we were to spend time thinking about it for a minute, all of us, we read this stuff that brings up nostalgia and we go, oh, you know, I kind of miss having that type of friend group. And we've talked about this a few a few times on here, but it's like, and our friend group wasn't even neighborhood. We were just like, we would get together a couple times a year, maybe five or six on the on the high end. But it's like, everybody wants to be a part of a group that they are understood in, they are accepted in. It's tribalism. And as much as I don't love tribalism, it's hard to combat. Like tribalism exists through space and time and all people groups. And like, if you're on the inside of the tribe, you're good to go. And if you're on the, if you're on the outside, man, go find a different tribe because you're not welcome here. It's just, it's real. There's people that your group doesn't like and there's people that other groups don't like and it's you, right? So I think that we all kind of long for going back to the time when we had that type of friend group where I think we were a little more accepting, honestly, right? Like, because you would let kids in your neighborhood be friends with you, even if you were a bit of a dingus to them, because it's your neighborhood and you just, you didn't want to not have friends either. So you, you push past a lot of the things that stop us from being friends with people today. And despite being just ma- major asshats and everybody has played the bully to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Sadly. Yeah. yeah. Kids are more accepting. Uh, they just, they'll just be friends with you and you can be friends for a semester, friends for a day, friends for a week, friends for the rest of your life. But yeah. those that, well, the, you know, if it continue, if you continue to be friends, right. But the sparks that create friendship in childhood are just so much more simple and pure than in adulthood. Yeah. And nobody expects you as a kid. And I've mentioned this in my complaints about adult friendships, even as kids, nobody expects to be bosom buddies or die in battle in a tr- proverbial trench somewhere, you know, right now they're just like, Hey, you're cool. I'm cool. You have a Nintendo. Oh, you have you know, cap guns. You want to go play, you know, cops and robbers. Oh, you have a bike too. Let's go down to the Barrens or let's go yeah. down to the woods behind the Walmart and just, you know, kick shit around. See what we can find, find yeah. a stick to create a fort. Whatever. Right. Yeah. So really looking forward to more of this book uh, and diving into it. Honestly. Yeah. Me, me too to do this with you because this is a favorite book of mine. We're going to explore dairy together and I'm going to read one more quote that encapsulates where we're going to go. And then, right. and then we can, uh, we can land this uh, clown car, flying clown car. What are you going to call this thing? Uh, we can drive this clown car into the great abyss. Excellent. So this quote is from, the last part of the first interlude and Mike is talking to the historian whose name I forget, I think Carson. And he's asking him about dairy and more stories and mentions the unpleasant stories about dairy. And this is the historian's response. Do you mean the unpleasant stories you may hear or the ones you already know? There are always unpleasant stories. A town's history is like a rambling old mansion filled with rooms and cubbyholes and laundry chutes and garrets and all sorts of eccentric 
little hiding places. Not to mention an occasional secret passage or two. If you go exploring, dairy, you'll find all sorts of things. Yes, you may be sorry later, but you'll find them. And once a thing is found, it can't be unfound, can it? Some of the rooms are locked, but there are keys. There are keys. You may come to think you've stumbled on the worst of Derry's secret, but there is always one more, and one more, and one more. Yeah, I took note of that at the end of the interlude because I know, you know a good author when you read them, right? Like, mm-hmm. that's not put in there for no reason. And well, I don't think that we're going to get all the answers. And so, like, future Jonathan's probably going to complain about not having enough of the world building, which is fine. It's a common it's a common complaint of mine. Yeah. But honestly, that means it's a good book, right? Like, if I'm left wanting more, and we're ending the episode, so hopefully you're left wanting more about It by Stephen King, it means that you have been entertained and you're engaged. If you if you're left wanting more, so it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yes, sir. All right. Well, that's the episode today, folks. We appreciate you joining us, and let us know in the comments if you've read it before. If you have thoughts on nostalgia or friend groups or memory or any of the things we discussed today, have you? enjoyed it have you picked up on the different plot lines and and nods that stephen king has put into the other books that slava mentioned maybe you have maybe you haven't let us know in the comments next time on side quest we've got part two of it which uh slava we're going to go through what another three chapters and another interlude is that right a little bit more part one was the shadow before and all the introductions Part two is called June of 1958, and it's chapters four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and the second interview. Exciting, exciting, exciting. Now, folks, you know what time it is. If you haven't done it already, be sure to hit that subscribe button so that you never miss a side quest and all the treasure that lies ahead. Richie, I got a balloon for you. <laughs> Don't you want a balloon? <laughs> What's the matter? One balloon, not enough. Try a... <laughs>